Steven. Like the wolf man again. No, but it's the dog man. 
And you're listening to CITR FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And you just heard right there the junkyard dog with Grab Them Takes, the wrestler, the junkyard dog from 1985's wrestling album, but this was actually the 12-inch version. The Junkyard Dog. Grab them cakes. Today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show, an interview with Nirvana. Yes, I'm going to play excerpts, probably a good chunk of Nirvana. Never mind. It's an interview, a promo disc from 1992, as well as my interview with Nirvana from 1994, January 4th. And to prepare you for Nirvana, here is Reunion from 1974 with Life is Rock on the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. Stingers, Martha Hooper, Rachel Singers, Lonnie Mac, a twang and Eddie, his been ring, we're going steady, take it easy, take me high, lie, lie, how's a fire, no commotion, poker, passion, deeper purple, satisfaction, baby, baby, got it, got it, get me, get me, getting hot, and Sam is cooking, Leslie Gora, Richie Valens, end of story, my Vista Fuji, I'm a Kama Sutra, Rama Lama, Richard Perry, Spectre Barry, Righteous Archers, Nielsen, Harry, Shimmy, Shimmy, Coco, Pop it, Fats is back, and finger pop it, Life is a Tabulation, Carly, Simon, Eddie, Holder, Rolling Stone, and a Folder, Johnny Cash and Johnny Rivers, Cancel, Now I Got the Shivers, Mongo, Jerry, Peter, Peter, Paul, Paul, and Mary, Mary, Dr. John, the Nightly Tripper, Doris, Day, and Jack the Ripper, Got it, Go, So Got it, Sweater, Leah, Russell, Give Me Shelter, Miracles, and Smoky Blessed, Slide Guitars, and Fender Bass, and Mushroom, Mumble, and Bonnie, Bramley, Wilson, Pick it, Stop it, Kick it, Life is a rock, but the radio, Life is a rock, but the radio, Denver, John and Osmond, Donnie, Jojo, Kaelin, CZ, Top and LLB, and DD, Donna, David Bowie, Steely, Dan, and see me proud of CC, Ryder, Edgar, Winner, Jonas, Summers, Isaac, Marge, Johnny, Thunder, Eric, Clap, the Pedal, Wallace, Steve, the Foster, Do-Da, Do-Da, Cool Vibrations, LB, Ronda, Serpent, Girl, and Little Honda, Tida, Tida, Honey, Honey, Sugar, Sugar, Yummy, Yummy, CBS, and Warner Brothers, RCA, and all the others,
And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. You just heard right there the hunting party with Make You Believe. Thank you so much, Noise to Go Records, for the cassette of the hunting party. Now, the hunting party were comprised of Randy Carpenter, Bob Peterson, Ron Scott, Dimwit and Nick Jones. Nick Jones and Dimwit from The Pointed Sticks. So we heard from 1986, The Pointed Sticks from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, broke up, I think, in about 1981. This is from 1986, and we heard Make You Believe by The Hunting Party, which just happens to be co-written by Jones slash Carpenter slash Nicole, which might have been possibly a later era pointed sticks number but most likely not but anyways that was the hunting party from 1986 vancouver with make you believe and the hunting party were gonna play expo 86 but unfortunately slow dropped their pants and the entire independent music festival was cancelled they were one of the bands that was mad at slow for getting the independent music festival cancelled that was the hunting party and before that we heard the dub rifles from winnipeg manitoba and we heard the song stand from 1983 and we began with Reunion, Life is a Rock, from 1974. Right now, I thought I would play selections from Nirvana. Never mind, it's an interview, and then follow it up with an interview I did with Nirvana. Now, this particular interview was done by Kurt St. Thomas, written, produced, and interviewed by Kurt St. Thomas, and produced by Mark Cates, who now manages, among others, the Cribs and MGMT. So here we go with some selections from Nirvana. Thank you, Leora Kornfeld, and the beat for this CD. Never mind, it's an interview, and we are going to follow that up by an interview I did with Nirvana. This particular interview was actually recorded. It does not actually give the actual days. It does say Kurt St. Thomas, music director of WFNX Boston, speaks with Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic, and Dave Grohl about life in Nirvana circa 1992. So here we go. Nirvana. Never mind. It's an interview some selections from it, and then an interview I, Nardwarda Human Serviette, did with Nirvana, all in honor of Nirvana's 25th anniversary of releasing Nevermind. Here, say hi really loud. Ready? On three. Ready? Go. That's my sister. Um, that was being recorded for this interview CD. 
I punctured every speaker in the cabinets, and there were um, 12 speakers to puncture. Really, I can't think of anything better to do than to puncture speakers. That's my favorite piece of equipment to destroy. It's a lot of fun. I had Kurt's guitar cabinet. Like, I was smashing it, picking it. These things are heavy smashing it onto my bass drum, trying just to completely crack and destroy the bass drum, and it wouldn't do it. I was wailing on it with guitars. I was throwing it off of the riser as high as I could. Drums are hard to break. Well, at first I wanted to be in a rock band when I was really young, and I decided about third grade that I wanted to be a stuntman. So, oh, heck yeah, Evil Knievel was a big influence on that. I jumped my bikes, and I took all the bedding and pillows out of our house and put it on the deck and got up on top of the roof and would jump off. And I took a thin piece of metal one time, duct taped it to my chest, and put a bunch of firecrackers on it and lit them on fire. Buzz Osborne, guitar player from the Melvins, he like discovered punk rock and uh, he was turning people onto it. I heard it and uh, it sounded live to me. And then um, I borrowed the record, Generic Flipper, and I listened to it and it just, it was like a revelation. It was like, wow, it was just heavy, it was art. I was affected and I've never been the same since. It was like a breakthrough. I was um, 15 when I got my first guitar. My mother had just gotten married. This was in the first year of her marriage. My stepfather went out on her, and uh, she got so irate that she took all of my stepfather's guns, uh, various guns, pistols and rifles and stuff, walked down to the river and threw them in. And then I hired this kid to fish a couple of them out, and I sold them, and then I got my first guitar with the money. Oh, uh, yeah, I took lessons for a week. I learned how to play Back in Black by ACDC. And it's pretty much the Louie Louie chords, so that's all I needed to know. I never did pay the guitar teacher for that week either. I still want my money. But that's it. And then I just started writing songs on my own. Once you know the power chord, you don't need to know anything else. Aberdeen's basically just small town America. It's about 100 miles southwest of Seattle. It's on the Pacific Ocean. Its main industry is logging and not forest products. There's really no roads going through there. It's just kind of off the beaten path, off the beaten track, and uh, things just kind of change, come slowly to Aberdeen. Everything revolves around the logging industry there. It's all logging. If the logging stopped, that'd be a ghost town. Aberdeen, Washington, 1987. Nirvana was formed between singer-guitarist Kurt Cobain and bassist Chris Novoselic. Chris explains the birth of the band. A little social group came together and we just kind of hung out and, you know, talked about things. And then one thing led to another and Kurt did a tape with um, Dale Clover from the Melvins. One of the songs on it was Spank Through. And he turned me on to it and I really liked it. It kind of got me excited. So I go, hey man, let's start a band. And we scrounged up a drummer and we started practicing. Took it very seriously too. I can feel The band recorded their first demo tape with Dale Crover of the Melvins. He played on our first demo, and a couple of those songs made it over to the Bleach LP, Floyd the Barber, and Paper Cuts. We jammed for about a week, put some songs together, 
I made this tape. Kurt and Chris then enrolled Chad Channing to become Nirvana's first full-time drummer. Chad wanted to express himself in a way that really didn't gel with the band. Chad really compromised his style to suit the band. I don't think he was happy doing that. And uh, it was a good departure, you know. It worked well for everybody. Good Lord, bless and keep you. Bye now. In December of 1988, Sub Pop Records released a limited 1,000 copies of Nirvana's first single, Love Buds, a shocking blue cover with the B-side Big Cheese. Months later, in June of 89, the first Nirvana album, Bleach, was released. Kurt, Chris, and Chad recorded the album for $600 with producer Jack Endino. Jason Everman is also listed on guitar, but he didn't actually appear on the album, only on the tour. Kurt on Bleach. Bleach just seemed to be really one-dimensional. It just has the same format. All the songs are slow and grungy, and they're tuned down to really low notes. And I screamed a lot. And uh, But at, at the same time that we were recording Bleach, we had a lot more songs like About a Girl. In fact, Polly was written at that same time, too. It's just that we chose to put the more abrasive songs on, on the Bleach album. So it really wasn't a matter of evolving within just a year, you know. We've always liked pop music and have always had a few songs like that.
That's About a Girl, recorded live Halloween night, 1991, in the city where Nirvana now calls home, Seattle, Washington. After the release of Bleach, the band went on its first national tour, and they were gearing up to record their second album. Chris explains. We went to Madison, Wisconsin, to record a record with Butch Vig in the spring of 1990. We laid down about six, seven songs, which was like um, Lithium, In Bloom, uh, Polly. Polly. Oh, Dive. B-Side of Sliver made it out. Uh, Stay Away. Anyway, we went there in the spring to record a record, right? Right after we finished recording the record, we went on this um, about eight-week tour of the U.S., starting in Madison. We got as far as New York, and everything was geared up to, you know, put out this second Nirvana record. We were going to record maybe a few more songs in Seattle. This was going to be on Sub Pop, This was going to be Sub Pop. This was going to be our second record, right? It was supposed to come out probably September of 1990. And, well, once we got off that tour, that's when we lost Chad. So there's uncertainty with that. We didn't want to release it. If we wanted to do anything, we wanted to do it with a new drummer. Sub Pop was doing some wheeling and dealing. They were going to sign a licensing deal with a big label, and that kind of um, scared us. And there were so many variables to consider that it wasn't wise to put out a record at all. We went and we toured the UK, and uh, we went and uh, toured uh, Western Canada. And uh, next thing you know, we were talking to labels ourselves, so that was just like... With Chad leaving the band, Curtin Chris then enrolled friend and Mudhoney drummer Dan Peters. But Dan only lasted one gig. Well, yeah, and it was a great gig, too. It was at the Motorsports Garage in Seattle. There was about 1,500 people there. Or no, there was a lot more people there. There was a lot of people there. And uh, we just recorded a sliver single with them a couple weeks before. And he was looking like he was going to be in our band. And that was just another case of compromising his style for our band. You know, he was going to go out and buy a bigger drum set. And, you know, you could really hear his style. It's just mud honey, you know, those snare rolls. And, well, you know, that's when the future of uh, mud honey was uncertain. Steve wanted to go to school, and there was all this. It was just like, are mud honey going to break up? And Dan saw opportunity to join our band certain things so like yeah we love Dan as a person and we love his drumming well it just goes back to that it was uncertain and if Dan would have joined our band it would have been certain that Mudhoney was finished and we didn't want to be responsible for that enter Dave Grohl not just another drummer he's the most well-adjusted boy I've ever met totally easy to get along with everyone loves him he plays drums better than any drummer i've ever heard i mean he he blows away john bonham if i had a if you know if i had the choice of like bringing john bonham back to life or to choose of any drummer of any band i i couldn't even think of they wouldn't be better than dave he's great he's great yeah he's he's the backbone of the band dave was playing in the washington dc band scream when things fell apart Dave explains. In 1990, we were on tour, doing a tour of America, and we were halfway through the tour in Los Angeles. Their tour made it as far as Los Angeles, and their bass player flew the coop. We got stranded there. There wasn't really much to do, and I called my friend Buzz Osborne, who um, was a singer for the Melvins. We'd known each other for a while. Mutual friend of Kurt and Chris. Yeah. He's actually the one that introduced them to each other. 
and he ended up introducing me to the band. And he just said that um, they were looking for a drummer and that they saw screenplay in San Francisco and thought I was really good, blah, 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 no romantic story. We were just blown away by the whole whole band, especially the drummer. The drummer was really good. I called him up. When he called up, we're like, yeah, man, come on up. The strangest thing about it was moving up to the Northwest with no money and nothing. I mean, I didn't, I'd still only have like a bag of clothes and I have drums. I bought a bed a couple months ago. So I have a room with this futon on the floor. But I mean, I don't have anything, so I didn't really have to move. And uh, just, you know, moving up, leaving your best friends in the world. Yeah, it was weirder for him probably because he's kind of homesick, you know? I mean, I didn't know Chris or Kurt and I ended up living on Kurt's couch for eight months and just packed up his stuff and came to Washington State. I had every misconception that everyone else had, you know? Sure. All I thought Seattle was was like flannel shirts and blurry Charles Peterson photos, you know? Living in this little cracker box hellhole of an apartment. And I'm quite a slob, as you can see. If you had someone that you did not know come and move into your apartment, and uh, you were sort of like, you felt this responsibility, like, okay, well, we must get along. But it was kind of hard for two people to live in this really small you know, apartment with one bedroom and just garbage all over the floor. A lot of corn dog sticks laying around. Whatever, like a month or two, we were out in the backyard shooting stuff with BB guns and breaking windows at the lottery building across the street. It was fun, it was great. That apartment was great. It was nice because Dave turns out to be just as much of a slob as me.
That's Aneurysm, the B-side of Smells Like Teen Spirit, recorded live. We'll be back with more of Nevermind, it's an interview, right after this. Welcome back to Nevermind, it's an interview. With Nirvana's lineup now set, Kurt, Chris, and Dave began rehearsing. We'd been um, practicing in this really weird practice space. This man built a studio in his in, in this like barn in his backyard, but it wasn't a barn. It was this thing that had a studio in it, and then upstairs, his brother lived up there, and he was in this really bad like Howard Johnson's lounge band. Everything is carpeted with this like brown shag carpet, and he even had stage lights in there. And he had a massive PA that he just did not know how to use. And you turn it on, and shh, there's just this huge hiss. And we were practicing a lot, and we were writing a lot of material. We'd write them; they were great for like two weeks. Oh my God, this is the best song ever! And we'd forget them. And so then we decided, okay, well we'll start putting them on cassette. So we started recording them on these boombox things, and we'd lose the cassettes, you know. And so I mean, we wrote so much material material that we just like forgot about and every once in a while we'll like pull one out and turn it around while the band was writing and rehearsing the major labels started taking interest they were whining and dining us and there were some labels we were impressed by them but uh we thought dgc would be the best for us was one of the main reasons because of sonic youth yeah we knew sonic youth we were happy on there and uh, we always loved and respected sonic youth so and uh there's like all these rumors that we got like a million dollars or 700 it was actually in, even in spin magazine it was printed that that we got seven hundred fifty thousand dollars and we didn't even get a quarter of that what we did was instead of going for the big dough we went for the strong contract which enables you like more freedom and more freedom um, more percentage points on the record and there's a lot of clauses in there that are in our favor now if our record would have bombed we would have kicked ourselves in the butt and said, man, we should have took the cash. But we're not in it for the money. We were in it for, you know, let's put out a record and let's do this thing right. I really don't know what the definition of selling out is anymore. I guess I really don't care. We haven't compromised. A record label lets us do anything we want. We think on the same level. There's nothing that we've done that, that could be considered a sellout at all, at least not in my eyes. A lot of people who are calling a sellout, they forget that you know, the Ramones and the Sex Pistols were on major labels. So it was The Clash, and they all, all those bands are trying to become big stars. They didn't even deny it. Crap, the, the Ramones had a movie out after them, you know, to help support them. You know, I think if you make money and you start voting Republican because you'll get tax breaks and they're the party of the rich, I mean, that's sold out. In early 1991, Nirvana entered the studio with producer Butch Vig. Yeah, we worked with him in the springtime when we when we did that demo that I mentioned earlier. He was just easy to work with, laid back, and uh, really attentive to what's going on. He works hard, but he doesn't work the band hard. It was about time that the band recorded something. Finally, it had been so long. It's called Sound City, and... The board and the room are really old. The board is from the early 70s. All the dinosaurs have recorded there. Uh, Fleetwood Mac, uh, Cheap Trick. There's nothing more disgusting than the late 80s or early 90s slick sound. You know, you just can't escape it. No matter how 
retro and old you try to be or what kind of old equipment you use, you still can't help but sound new. We got a warm sound out of that place. It had been two years since Bleach. It had been a while since the band had gone in and recorded a full LP, so it was more of like, wow, okay, we're in the studio, let's just get this done, let's just do it. We made the record we wanted to make. We didn't have any, we didn't want to make the number one record. We didn't want to make some big hit record. We just, you know, that re- would have been the same record if it was on Sub Pop.
That's Drain You, recorded live. Kurt and Dave talk about writing songs. It's usually done on acoustic guitar, sitting around in my underwear, just picking out riffs, pieces of songs. Maybe Kurt will come in with a melody, uh, a guitar riff, and um, show it to us. We go to practice, and then we play the song over and over and over again. We just jam. There's no real formula. Chris and Dave have a big part in deciding on how long a song should be and how many parts it should have. So I, I don't like to be considered as the whole songwriter, but I do come up with the basis of it. I come up with the singing style during practice, and then I write the lyrics usually minutes before we record. That song really wasn't even written until a week before we went into the studio. And uh, I knew I wanted cello on it, but after the all the music was recorded for it, we'd kind of forgotten about putting a cello on it. And we had one more day in the studio, and we decided, oh, geez, we should try to hire a cellist, you know, and put something in. And we were at a party, and we were asking some of our friends if they had any friends who played cello. And it just so happens one of our best friends in L.A. plays cello. So we took him into the studio on the last day and said, here, play something. And he came up with something right away. It just fell like dominoes. It was really easy. in the song are really contradictory you know one after another they're kind of a rebuttal to, to each line and they're just kind of confusing I guess it's just about people and uh, what they're expected to act like just because I say I in the song doesn't necessarily mean it's me a lot of people have a problem with that. It's just the way I write usually, take on someone else's personality or character. I'd rather just use someone else's example because, I don't know, my life is kind of boring. So, you know, I just take stories from things that I've read and off the television and stories I've heard and maybe even some friends. All he wants a cracker. Obviously, I don't like rednecks. I don't like macho men. You know, I don't like abusive people. And um, I guess that's what that song is about. It's an attack on them. goofing around in my house one night and we we're kind of drunk and we were writing graffiti all over the walls of my house and she wrote Kurt smells like teen spirit and earlier on we were kind of having this discussion on revolution and teen revolution and stuff like that and I took that as a compliment I thought that she was saying that I was a person who, who could inspire I just thought that was a, it was a nice little title and it turns out she just meant that I smelt like the deodorant. I didn't even know that deodorant existed until after the song was written. My father said this to me. I know why you guys have sold so many records. The video shows a bunch of kids trashing a gymnasium. You know? <laughs> and I mean, that sort of works. 
like a Nirvana spokesman of the lost generation. They're telling you to go out and destroy your local gymnasium. I don't really, I don't see it that way. I mean, like, I don't want to hold the responsibility of being a spokesman for anything, you know. I can barely hold my own. I guess it's flattering, and I guess it's great that it actually sort of gives people a feeling of sort of like breaking out and um, telling anyone and anything just to fuck off. That's on a plane, recorded live. Kurt talks about the artwork on Nevermind. One day, Dave and I were sitting around watching a documentary on babies being born underwater, and uh, we thought that was a really neat image. So we thought, 
let's put that on the album cover. And then when we got back a picture of a baby underwater, we thought it w I thought it would look nice for a fish hook with a dollar bill on it. And so the image was born. It's just a rubber monkey that I've had for years. And I took that picture. I was in a bohemian photography stage, you know, taking a bunch of weird arty pictures. That's one of them. It's a collage that I made many years ago. I, I get, got these pictures of beef from a supermarket poster and cut them out and made a mountain of beef and then put Dante's people being thrown into hell, climbing all over it. And um, that's pretty much it. There's also, if you look real close, there's a picture of Kiss in the back, standing on a slab of beef. Thirteen minutes and 51 seconds after the beginning of track 12, the band put a secret song on the Nevermind CD. This mystery song didn't make the first pressing, though. Dave explains. When we got our first CD and popped it in, we listened to it. Oh. Oh, let's check to see if the track is there, and it wasn't there. The reason for it, I think the original reason was because something in the way is sort of like your slower whatever song. It's the last song on the record and most likely to be listened to by like someone that would have like a carousel CD player. And so, okay, why not like just screw up their little carousel deal? I was talking to a, a friend who works in a record store, and he said uh, a person came in with the CD and said, you know, this thing screwed up. After the last song, there's like this 10 minutes of dead space, and then this total noise song. He wanted his money back. And the person at the stores said, well, I th think maybe it was a, a joke of the band, you know, put it on after, I guess, well, I don't think it's very funny, you know? And he wanted his money back. It was just like... In a moment, we'll find out what's ahead for Nirvana when Nevermind, It's an Interview continues. And that was Nevermind, It's an Interview. Unfortunately, we will not hear part three, but you did hear part one and part two, and that was Kurt St. Thomas, music director of WFNX Boston, speaking with... Kurt Cobain, Chris, Chris Neveselic, and Dave Grohl about life in Nirvana circa 1992. Again, that was a CD called Nevermind. It's an interview by Nirvana, promo only, produced by Mark Cates. Now, here is my own Nardwar to Human Serviette interview with Nirvana from January the 4th, 1994. It's Nardwar versus Nirvana. So, Kurt, um, I waited outside. How was the Toronto show? How did that go? Because I was in Toronto at that time when you played at Maple Leaf Gardens. Don't say that I'm making any kind of ethnic stereotypes. I'm not making any stereotypes because they're not PC. Do you remember that show at all, Kurt? No. <laughs> Maple Leaf Gardens in November? Mm, that was, um... I remember that with the little backstage. It was, it was a nice temperature because I think it was an ice hockey rink. Yeah, it was Maple Leaf Gardens. 
And um, I waited outside, you know, for a couple hours afterwards, waiting for you guys to leave. How did you eventually leave? By limousine and cop escort. Did you leave pretty early? Because, like, they brought out, you know, the prop, the prop out, and, you know, you kept, I kept on waiting and waiting, and then I saw a little minivan pull out, and I saw a guy hulked over the back seat. Was that you? Like, did you wait, like, two hours? Or did you get, like, did I wait there for nothing because you'd already left? Bam, 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 I just remember leaving pretty much right after the show, within about 20 minutes or so. I met one of the guys from the Kids in the Hall, Scott. That's right. Nice we were mingling with famous people. They never talk to hacks like you. Fuck no. And what's They're your on course? TV what's your every at? night on Comedy Central and on the Canadian TV, and they know oh, Lauren Michaels. We, I got to meet Lauren Michaels and Don Pardo <laughs> and everybody because we're famous people. During the 1960s, Kurt, there was a big punk scene, as you realize, in Northwest. You know, the, the, the Sonics, the Wailers. The, I hate the Sonics, they're stupid. The, the Bootmen, mm -hmm. the Wailers and all those other bands. And I was reading that um, your good friend Jesse Reed, his dad played in a surf band that released a surf record. That's true. Isn't that weird that he... <laughs> what were they called? Where did you read that? It was called the Bagpiper. What was the name of their... Where did you read that? Uh, come as you are. The Beachcombers. Come as you are? What do you mean come as you are? The book? Yeah. From Michael Azarad. Mm. He's obsessed with Jesse Reed. Because uh, the Beachcombers, so were they pretty cool? I thought, like, I love those 60s wailing frat garage bands in the Northwest. No, I didn't have much taste. Was it was pretty generic. Again? It's born again now. the house? Yes, he did. He tried to revive me for a while. They also said in that book that your uncle Chuck was in a garage band too, and he released records, or did he release anything? No. Is that Mary? Really? She put out a single. She financed herself. She's a country and western born again Christian. And my uncle Chuck was in a couple of bar bands. You know, they just played covers like Green's Clearwater. He had a loose side drum set. And he was left-handed, and it wasn't very good. Is that Chuck with the red hair? Mm -hmm. Is that Chuck that's gay? No. Is it the one that we go to went to Christmas? That one, Chuck? The nice one. With the son that has your cousin who has the other band? Although he went to jail one time for um, exposing himself. Green from Bellevue, that's his cousin's band. Did you first meet Courtney? And this is Courtney Love. Did you? I've heard, because we're here in Canada, Vancouver, BC, Canada. I heard a rumor, I think I might have read it in Interview Magazine, that Kurt and Courtney first met at a. De <coughs> at a uh, did you first meet at a DOA gig in Portland, Oregon? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there is, there is really a Canadian connection there. <laughs> Wasn't it no means no? It was one of our shows. It was our show. It was my show. I played with DOA a couple times. I don't remember where. But, but was that... So a Canadian connection, a Canadian band, has something to do with Kurt and Courtney? Like, yes. I don't... Honestly, I don't remember which I don't show remember, it was. I was too drunk. Me too. Do you remember your first time in Canada at all, Kurt? No. I might have been a small child. I visited some gardens. We went across on a ferry. Vancouver. Bouchard Gardens. Right. Right, I was a small child. That's actually where No Means No were from. Mm. And the Neos, a legendary speed band. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for the Neos... Yeah, that's to say, you have a Canadian nanny, another Canadian connection. We like... Uh, the BC, we don't like the rest of it so much. What is her name? Uh, what is your nanny's name? His name's uh, Mike. And his, does he have a girlfriend? Jessica. Yeah. I think she might even been, she might be from Vancouver too, right? She's from Minneapolis. 
Um, they're not that great. People didn't have very good taste in the 60s and 70s. You know, usually that's the kind of stuff that I look for. No lava lamps, no cool pattern shirts or anything. Do you ever see any Farfisa mini compact organs? You know, like that quivering vibrato. I'm really desperate looking for one of those. I don't know. Maybe not in Aberdeen. Isn't also surfing in Aberdeen, like at Westport? <laughs> I don't know. I've never gone in the ocean. Because apparently it has some wrap. I don't want anyone to go into the ocean. Did you there. Didn't you dig for clams? I took for clams a few times, yes. That's going in the ocean. It's the same thing. I know you're going to like this, Courtney, but I also read in Mix Magazine, sorry, Mix Magazine. Oh, wow, you get around. He reads more magazines than me. Well, not really. We get a free subscription at CITR Radio, and this is for CITR Radio. I most of the magazines I read. Actually, five ninety-five Mix Magazine, and it said, Butch Vig was talking about the Nirvana, never mind album, and he said he sampled some guitar riffs. Is this true? I couldn't believe it. Sample guitar yeah, riffs. Like, what is that? Andy Wallace does that. He has like a little Macintosh and he's got a couple like snare sounds and, and guitar sounds. Sampling guitar riffs, I don't think. No, so. not riff sounds. He, I think Andy Wallace sa sampled a few different sounds for the drums to make them sound better, according to him. What's the idea between putting a behind, you know, putting a lot of mics on a drum? I know you say you don't really like the sonics totally, but I really love that sort of like one guitar. I, I, I have to admit, yeah, the sonics recorded very, very cheaply on a two-track, you know, and they just used one, one microphone over the drums, and they got the most amazing drum sound I've ever heard. Still to this day, it's still my favorite drum sound. It sounds like he's hitting harder than anyone I've ever known. And I have some good news. Don't you agree? It's amazing. I have some good news for you, Kurt. Do you know that we're Sonics recorded audio recording in Seattle with Kearney Barton is still around and you can actually still record there? Really? The young, fresh, the young fresh fellows, pioneers in that sound by, you know, going at Egg Studio and stuff, they recorded a new track off their CD, their 99 Girls, right at that studio. The Kearney Barton Audio, you can check it out. Like the same guy is there that recorded the Sonics. Who was born in 1842? No, he wasn't born in 1842, but I think that band Teen Jenner from Japan did that. And in Japan, they don't seem to have too much vinyl, do they? Aren't they into vinyl in Japan? They're into anything classic American, aren't they? I don't know. I don't go there often. Um, Kurt, what is Geffen's position on on vinyl? Like, is it easy to release seven inches? Can you release them domestically? Not usually domestically. Only in Europe and England, especially. We always, they've always offered to print vinyl for us because they know we we like that kind of thing. So, it's been no problem. I don't think it ever will be, as long as there's at least one place somewhere that'll print vinyl, they'll still do it. Readers sold 150 copies of their vinyl in the States. 150 copies. Isn't that weird? How much did Spencer Eldon receive from the Nirvana camp? A lot. A lot. A lot. You know why? And Spencer Eldon is who? For the guy from Nirvana, right? The little baby on the cover. Oh, Spencer! Yeah. Oh, that's the guy we're going to have at dinner when he grows up. This thing. Well, the Nirvana, the guy's from Nirvana. I don't know. It was a lot cheaper than the picture that we wanted to use. What's PA equipment like in South America? Tonight I noticed you had quite an extensive PA. It sounded, I thought, really good. What's PA? What are, what, what are, what is the PA like in South America? What are they like? What are the tech crews there like? Evie. That's right. <laughs> Univox. Has your does your tech crew has it improved your sound? You think like in South America, were they freaking out? What was it like there? I don't remember. 
He's like, what's for Jacques Coke with Alice in Chains all night? I don't remember. Did you really custom design a guitar, your own special little model? Yeah. How many models were there, and can I buy one? I don't know. I don't know if it's gone into production yet. I don't know if it'll be available for the public. It's up to them to decide. But I basically just, I, well, so what I did is I took a picture of a Mustang, a Polaroid picture of a Mustang and a picture of a Jaguar, and then cut them in half and glued them together and told them to build that. So that's what it is. It's the Jag Stang. What other bands, Kurt, have played in Argentina? Like, you played there. What was it like? And were you one of the first bands to play there, do you know? I don't think so. I've heard that Skid Row played there. Have any other melodic punk bands played there? I do not know. We played at the Chili Peppers that night. Ever heard of the Canadian band Saga before? Yeah, I think so. Are they a pop metal band? I think they played in Argentina. Kurt, what do you think of the last Flipper LP? Eh. Okay. What were Bjorn again like from Europe? Wonderful. Uncanny. Amazing. They looked exactly and sounded exactly like ABBA. Are they better than Rain, a tribute to the Beatles? I've never seen them. They did a big center spread in a rocket. Mm. Have you ever going to get Screaming Jay Hawkins to try to back you up again? We tried, but it fell through. I would like to try again. Anybody else cool that you can think you're going to bring with you and back you up? Like, I was thinking The Sweet, maybe, and get Kurt Block, the guest on guitar? That wouldn't be too hard, would it? No, or will village people be no problem? Anybody else you've been thinking of? Well, those are two that just ran through my mind. Um, no, not really. Buscocks. Buscocks. We've had some amazing bands play with us on this tour. We had um, the Boredoms, the Meat Puppets, and gee, who else? Shawbreaker. But no Bonham or Quiet Riot or anything? Not yet. Went at the Riviera Steakhouse in a couple of years. Courtney said that Geffen, Kurt, made $55 million off you, and you guys... I'm quoting the Wall Street Journal. And you guys only got a million. Where did the money go? To Geffen. It's always been. I explained that to you. It's like a white guy giving a black guy a Cadillac. I walked into David's room one day, and I said, listen, man, I feel like I'm getting ripped off. And he said, look outside. There's a Cadillac for you. And I took it. And I just, you know, just forgot all that, trying to get my royalties from him. And it turns out the fucking Cadillac was rented. Can you believe it? Um, if Nirvana has total control, Kurt, I was wondering slightly about ticket prices for gigs. Is there any way to make tickets and t-shirts universally the same, i.e. $10 to get into the gig and $10 for a t-shirt? No. Unless you're for Gauzy. Has any band ever tried that before? I mean, on a major label, you know, because you have perhaps more control over what's going on. You could maybe, because you guys are playing a cool place tonight, like a small, it's on a big coliseum. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Really. It's really expensive to bring your own PA system and lights and stuff. You barely break even. Do you know what you and Axel have something in common, Kurt? Yeah, a lot. You both sing in uh, faked English accents as he does in the Spaghetti Incident on the new UK Subs track. Did you check it out? No, I haven't. Actually, sort of kicked ass. That's Guns N' Roses recording of the UK Subs. Because you mentioned in your book that you actually record, or the book about you come as you are, you some of fake English accents. Mm-hmm. What can I say? I'm a death rocker. Have you ever thought of partying with Bill Gates at all, finally winding up here, Kurt? Bill Gates from Microsoft, partying with Bill Gates. Because, you know, who are the two newest members of the Seattle scene, Kurt? Here's a trick question for you. Bill Gates. 
Microsoft and Nintendo. And finally, Kurt. It is, it's based out of Seattle. And finally, Kurt Cobain of the rock and roll band Nirvana. If Frances Farmer will have her revenge on Seattle, who will have their revenge on Vancouver? Pete Reno. Who? I don't know. Eddie Munster. Eddie Munster. He's from Vancouver, right? Uh, Kurt? Pete Reno, I said it. Who's Pete Reno? You know. Mike Reno, that's Mike, Mike, Mike Renowski, actually. Oh, Reno's this half-retarded person that went to my high school, sorry. And gonna be on Exploitation Records? Mm-hmm. Uh, Kurt, doot doo do loot do Kurt, doot doo do loot do doot doo do loot do This is a song I um, did about when Kurt died, and um, it's called I Love You Anyway.